Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Alden Union Church. And uh, once again, for those of you that may not have been with us last Sunday evening, this is a little different uh, kind of a setup that we have. We're having electives tonight, which means you choose one out of four different sessions that you can attend, and they'll be in different parts of the building. So in a few moments, we will be going to those places, and we will also be introducing the elective so you know what is going on. And I will tell you where they will be at that particular time. I have just one announcement that I'd like to make tonight before we sing a hymn together. And that is that if you have ever considered going to the Holy Land to visit the sites in Israel where a lot of the events of the scriptures took place, I'd like to invite you to what is simply an informational meeting. It'll be held here next Sunday in the conference room next to the chapel at 530 and uh, what we would like to do with Pastor Ed, who is going to be leading this, like to start planning for a trip to Israel in June of 2017. So that gives us plenty of time. And it's not a cheap trip. You can't imagine going to the Holy Land and it being inexpensive. So it gives a couple of years to be putting some money aside little by little, if that's something that you've always wanted to do. So the discussion will center around possible itineraries. The group itself will decide exactly where you'll be going and how long it will be, and then the expenses will be known as well. So uh, also there'll be a few highlights that will be shared about what it meant to visit Israel back in 2013 when a group of about 30 from this church and another church and some others from throughout the country joined together to go. So if you have any questions in the meantime, contact uh, Pastor Ed about that Holy Land trip and the meeting 5.30 next Sunday night prior to this service. Let's sing our testimony, 512. You may know it as I stand amazed. My Savior's love. Stand with me and sing verses 1, 2, and 5. I'm sorry, 1, 4, and 5. 1, 4, and 5, and stand. Thank you. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus Nazarene And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean How marvelous, how wonderful in my song shall ever be How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me took my sins and my sorrows and made them his very own. He left the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my sin. Savior's 
be seated. Good evening. Tonight we have the privilege of praying for Arlene Cheney. I would like to encourage you to remember her in prayer this week as you spend time with the Lord. Please pray with me now as, we, as I lead us in prayer. Father, we pray for Arlene Cheney tonight, remembering her and her husband Ray, who served you faithfully for so many years with Village Mission. And now, even though you have called Ray home to be with you, she stays busy serving in her church in Florida in many capacities. Father, we thank you for her example of being a faithful servant, regardless of, re of retirement, and that her life and joy is serving you and your church wherever she is. Lord, she, is, she not only serves you in her church, but she also serves in her retirement community as she helps residents there prepare for estate sales. Lord, we pray that you will continue to give her the strength and stamina she needs as she truly serves as the hands and feet of Jesus. And now, Father, as we give back just a small portion of what you've given us, Lord, remind us of that it's not only our daily bread you provide, but every breath we breathe, every step we take, and that we do it all for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Tammy and Amanda. How many of you who don't ordinarily come to the church thought they were sisters? Anybody? I just thought I would give them a little extra. Would those of you who are elective leaders make your way up here now? We're going to ask you to take just a moment and tell us what you'll be doing tonight. And uh, let's start with Paul. We'll go to Kevin and then Jim and then Judy. Well, I'm talking about congregational worship. Um, what it's about, what it's for, who it's for, uh, particularly this week, and we'll be talking next couple of weeks, too, about what it's like, what it can be like, and so on. I will do a little review of last week, if you missed last week, or if you just don't have a very good memory. So, um, And I have lots of handouts, so if you can't see or remember, you can write it all down. In the chapel, out bound to your left, we're studying the doctrine of God. We're continuing a look at what makes God God. What's God like by looking at how he's described himself? Parents, do you have children? (laughs) Well, for those of you that do, we're going to be discussing one of the most important aspects of parenting. Tonight, we're going to be dealing with instructing our children in the ways of the Lord. We're actually dealing with four specific subjects, laying a proper foundation, teaching our children according to God's plan, discipline according to God's plan, and making our children responsible. We're in Fellowship Hall. Thank you. Well, since he asked a simple question, I think I will too. Do you face life's challenges? Do you have any challenges in life you face? 
Well, for us ladies that are facing them, we're going to be looking at how to deal with them from a biblical mindset and a biblical point of view. Thank you. And that will be downstairs also. That will be in sections three and four. The one about children will be in sections one and two downstairs, LLO1, LLO2. And um, the one on worship is here. And as Pastor Kevin said, the, uh, the theology of God will be in the chapel. So I'd like to encourage you to uh, go to one of those electives. I'll be hanging around in the back if you have a question at all or if you need direction. And uh, on the way, let's take time and anybody that you see and get a chance to to say hello, to greet, we'll use this as our greeting time as well. So let's have a great evening. I think we're at the end of the papers. Everybody get one? Oh, we've got a couple more here, I guess. Everybody get one that wants one? <laughs> you need another one there? Okay. Thank you all for coming back, unless this is a whole new group. <laughs> if you are, you didn't get the word. <laughs> Uh, I was, when, I, when Jim got up and announced his uh, his uh, session, I thought, yeah, I should have said how important worship is. We talked about it a little bit last week. I, I really think that worship is the foundation of our Christian life in ter- because that's how we relate to God. And uh, very important that we learn not just what we do at church, but privately, because um, that's how... God and us, we, interact. And it's either a way that he's happy with because of us and what we do, or it's not. So it's very, very critical. And it also becomes, as we said, foundation for the rest of our life. So let me pray, and then we'll do a brief summary of last week. Uh, and you have it pretty much on the first page there, but some of you may have missed, and I wanted to bring you up to speed a little bit. Father, thank you for... This time set aside to look at this topic. Thank you for your word. Thank you for many people who have uh, written and um, studied and contributed to my understanding. And I pray that um, what I share will be helpful with these folks. And that what we learn together, we can do. And it will not just be something to file in a notebook, but something which we keep coming back to as people who want to please you. In Jesus' name, amen. What is worship? We talked about last week what worship was, and what did we use to first look at that? What was the first thing we looked at to try to decide what biblical worship was? Do you remember? Vocabulary. We looked at the scriptures and said, when the scriptures talk about worship, what are the words, and is there any pattern, and what do they mean? And uh, basically we said there was really two groups of words, a whole group of words in the Old and New Testament that basically meant the same thing, and it meant to bow. Um, and the bowing seemed, in the very various places, seemed to indicate that um, when people came face to face with God, or something he had said he was going to do, or something that he told them to do, um, those that were sensitive to him, uh, one of the first responses was to bow before him. Uh, basically because they felt an obligation to show submission to him. The second group of of words were words called, uh, what I call the work of worship, words meaning to serve and to minister. Um, And so that gave us sort of the two sides, the part of worship that deals with being 
awed by God, <laughs> A-W-E-D, by God, awed by God. And then the other side of it, where in a response to that, you submit and obey and, and serve and do things for him and in response to what he's asked you to do. And so throughout both the Old and New Testament, many of the activities uh, that were called for from Israel and from the church uh, and that they were involved in is, were called service and ministry. And often those words were used of things that looked like worship. And sometimes those words were used in a way that obviously the writer was laying his activity alongside of, say, the priests in the Old Testament. So just like the priests in the Old Testament did this, I serve God this way. Um, so there's that the two aspects of it. We also, uh, from that, came up with some principles towards the end from all those different passages, sort of implications of that. And um, they were these. First of all, worship occurs as a response to an encounter with God's presence, His Word, or His activity. Worship is a response. And we'll talk about that a little more tonight. And it's a response to an encounter with God. And we encounter God through His Word, through His presence, in various ways, and through his activity. That activity could be as simple as, simple as seeing God answer prayer for someone. Uh, it could be seeing things happen. One thing I, I heard of, a, of some people that went over to Egypt here oh, four months ago, maybe, and uh, not Egypt, but I'm sorry, Jordan, and they were seeing all these uh, Muslims coming out of Syria because they were scared to death of ISIS. And they were telling how they were turning from Islam to Christianity because of all the persecution. And they realized this, this is not what we want. And some of them were uh, having visions. You've probably heard of that. God was, was demonstrating himself through his activity and through the lives that he was changing in the midst of this horrible situation in Syria. And uh, it led me, as I thought about, to, to just in my own heart think, God is really great. To exalt him in my spirit, and if we'd had a song that fit, I would have sung it too. But it was wonderful to see what God was doing in a situation that at that point all I was thinking about, oh, those poor Christians are getting killed, which that's true, but in the, in the, in the whole um, uh, circumstance of that, the other half of that was God was bringing all these people to himself because of that same horrible situation. So we encountered God in a lot of different ways. Um, also, we, just, we saw that worship springs from an attitude of awe and submission to God. True worship recognizes our place before God, that He is God and we're not, as someone once said. And um, that generates in us proper responses to Him when we see Him as He is and then submit to Him. We also saw that worship can express itself in a number of different ways. Sometimes it expressed itself in posture. Someone asked me one of the questions they had, um, why don't we bow more uh, in, in worship? if that's part of it. And I would not be opposed to that. I would probably need to talk to the leadership and say, if we're going to do that, what do you think? But I know that uh, uh, Dr. Chriswell, who is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, a very large, large evangelical church down there, would come in at the beginning of the service and kneel at on the platform at the seat where he sat and pray 
before the service. And they had the kneeling benches in their pews so that they could plop those out and kneel to pray. Uh, not many Baptist churches have kneeling benches, but they did it. I w- attended a, a Baptist church, an independent Baptist church in New Jersey for a n- number of months where the pastor um, asked us if we were able to kneel. We didn't have kneeling. We just knelt down, if we could, on the floor in front of the pew when, when he did his pastoral prayer. Others would kind of bend over, but it was it was kneeling. And the I know that my father, who was a retired pastor, he often prayed kneeling at home. I would come up in the morning and see him somewhere kneeling. So we can bow. We, we've kind of got out of the habit of it, and it maybe seems a little uncomfortable, but I would not at all be opposed to that. It shows inward submission. It can be fake, it can be routine, but it can also be real. I mean, it obviously was. Okay? Verbal expression is another way. We talk about God to other people. In the Old Testament, it seems that the way people gave thanks to God was not to say, thank you, God, but to tell everybody what God had done. I'm so excited about what God did. Here's what he did. I give him thanks for this, and I'm going to tell you about it. So we can express it to God. Another way that we express worship is by ministry to God. Prayer is ministry to God. Of course, giving is ministry to God. Service for him as he calls us in our lives is ministry to him or to man. Worship also includes private acts of worship, what you do in your car, uh, in your home, um, when you're alone. Uh, It includes collective acts of worship like we do together, whether it's in a Sunday school class or a Bible study or a prayer meeting or a church service. When we're together as a group of people, as I mentioned, it includes various types of ministries. Paul considered his um, evangelism an act of worship. He called it the same word that was used for the uh, uh, priest's Old Testament worship uh, service in the, in the tabernacle and temple. Personal commitment and life obedience to God is also described in both the Old and New Testaments as an act of serving God, worshiping Him. Um, and then I, we proposed, I gave you a number of different definitions, and I proposed several and I'll just give you mine because it's the one I can remember the easiest. <laughs> and I think it works. And that definition was worship is responding appropriately and wholeheartedly to God's revelation of himself, his works, and his word. And that's pretty much just derived from looking at all those passages of Scripture. And so you see, you may be worshiping when you do something for another person during the day because God laid it on your heart to go help that person and you respond appropriately to what he said and that becomes an act of worship just as much as the Old Testament priest who took the animal sacrifice and slit his throat and put the blood in the different places was serving God it was not a particularly spiritual activity but it had purpose and meaning and it was serving both God and that man. So worship is responding appropriately and wholeheartedly to God's revelation of himself, his work, his works, and his word. A few other um, things we talked about. We talked a little bit about worship being the first priority of the believer and the first priority of the church, and that all acceptable activity as a Christian activity that God would consider not wood hand stubble but would reward you for is, in a sense, an act of worship. Um, 
And then we mentioned the fact that, uh, as John Piper has pointed out, worship is, is both the, the fuel and the goal of our service to the Lord. The more our personal worship becomes a furnace of hot fire, <laughs> the more it then propels us to serve Him, whether it's evangelism or edification of fellow believers or whatever. And it becomes the goal of all our ministries to help others worship God more perfectly. And the more I've thought about life events and world events, the more I've begun to see that the best way to understand them is that God is trying to bring glory to himself. God is not trying to save the most people. Otherwise, he's not doing a very good job. God is trying to bring glory to himself. And God will bring glory to himself through all the events that are going on in the world. And what we do when we worship is we participate in that. When we act according to his plan and his will in our lives, then we're contributing to that glory. Uh, so, a few other implications that we didn't mention. Worship is really a 24-7 activity, something you do every day of the, of the week, every minute of the day. You're either worshiping or you're not. You're either doing what God has called you to do, what he's asked you to do, what he's modeled for you, or you're not. You're either worshiping or rebelling. Um, it's not something you just do on Sunday. It's not something you just do when you're listening to music. It really encompasses all of life. And I used to tell people, if you only worship on Sunday, you probably don't worship on Sunday. Because worship isn't something you can just kind of turn on when you walk in the door. Um, if you're not in the habit of submitting to God and responding to Him throughout the week as He reveals Himself to you, what you're doing on Sunday is going to be very, very shallow, if, if at all real. So it's, it's uh, something we have to work at, and it should, Sunday should be an overflow of what's been going on all week. Uh, another implication is, is that worship is, is something that we do. It, it's your act. It's not something that people can do to you. Um, there's a, a bit of a movement today that puts an awful lot of uh, stock in worship leaders who are able to, and the phrases often, bring you into the presence of God. And it's as though somehow if you sit down with, in front of the right person in the right setting, he'll somehow just lift you into worship. Okay? Um, I think we help guide people into worship, that's true. But worship is, is something that you do. It's not something that people do to you. It's also not something you just observe. Uh, you're not worshiping when you're, when you're listening to somebody else worship. You're not worshiping when you're watching somebody else worship necessarily. And I think sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that if I listen to the right kind of music or if I watch the right video or whatever, then I'm worshiping. You may or may not be, but we're, unless you're involved personally in responding, uh, the worship hasn't really taken place yet. And then finally, and this sort of pains me, but not really, and that is, worship is not equal to music. Um, today, in, in the church, worship and worship music have almost become synonymous. I remember at the university, kids would, would come to chapel late, and, and I heard one say, yeah, I didn't get in there in time for the worship. And what they meant was they didn't get in there in time for the singing. 
as though what went on after the singing could not have been worship in any way. And we'll, you'll hear things like, is there any worship on that CD? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not on there. <laughs> it's not something you can wash off or glue on. And maybe the songs in there can help you worship, but that's not worship. The worship is what you're doing. The worship has to be in your heart, not on the CD or in the video. Now, some of that's probably uh, picking at words, but I think there's become kind of a trend to associate doing music or listening to music with worship and everything else is not worship. Uh, you'll, you'll probably hear examples of that in your own experience. But as you look at, at the definition of worship and what examples we saw, sometimes worship involves music. Not always, and probably not most of the time. Most of the time, worship involves more my spirit communing with God and doing what he wants me to do and my responding back to him the way I can. Maybe I can do it musically. If it was all music, then the folks that don't do music well or don't like music can't worship. That's not fair. You know, it, it just really isn't. Okay, so this moves us to sort of the big points of, of this whole s series of sessions, and that is... Marks of mature congregational worship. Um, in a sense, none of these are original with me, though I think there's some original formulation of these ideas and grouping and uh, combining. So uh, I'll share some things that I've picked up along the way with you um, that I believe are, are ways to evaluate how we're doing as a congregation in our congregational worship together. And I, I want to make a, a distinction here before we get into this too far, and that is when I talk about worship, I'm not talking about the worship service. Most worship services include other things in them that in a specific sense are not worship. Um, they may include edification. And while you could say all of life is worship in a sense, edification is, a, is distinct from worship. Worship is our response to God. Edification is our ministry to people. Now, I'm worshiping God when I serve you, but what I'm doing to you, I'm not worshiping you when I build you up. I'm edifying you. I'm trying to help you grow, trying to correct you, trying to encourage you, uh, try to teach you. Those things are edification. Worship is also not evangelism. Evangelism is what you do to people who aren't saved. You try to bring them to a point of understanding the gospel, putting their faith in Christ, and, and being converted to, to, follow, to a follower of Christ. That is not really the same thing as worship. Worship is what you do to God. Evangelism is what you do to people, Christians. I mean, uh, edification is what you do to Christians. Evangelism is what you do to non-Christians. So... There are things that go on in a service that I would not call worship, and that's fine. Especially in churches where they only really have one main gathering of all the people. There's more things that a body needs to do together than simply worship. They need to worship, but there's a lot of other things that make, make a body of, in a local congregation grow and thrive and, and get together with each other on a deeper level. So I'm not talking just about the worship service. I'm talking about the portions of the worship service that are intended to be revelation about God and response back to God in, in rather specific ways. Okay, let me ask you a question, and you can answer out loud if you'd like. 
Is congregational worship for the benefit and pleasure of the worshiper or for the benefit and pleasure of God? Okay, you say God, somebody said God over here, somebody else said God. I heard somebody say both. Okay, any other answers? Either or answers aren't fair, are they? <laughs> okay. Some of you have heard of um, George Barna. He did a study a number of years ago, and he asked people what the purpose of worship was and some other questions about it. And this is the result. And these were um, what I think you would consider in, a bro- in the broadest sense evangelicals. Okay. 40 47% of church attendees said worship was an activity undertaken for their benefit. Okay. 40%, 47% thought it was for them. Uh, 29% were, viewed worship as something that is focused primarily on God. 29% thought worship was primarily, had something to do with God. Okay. 20% <laughs> admitted they had no idea what the most important outcome of worship was. <laughs> Which, that's not surprising. You know, there's always a few clueless people in every group. This is a little shocking. Only 26%, and maybe you don't think it's shocking. I don't know, I did. Only 26% of pastors listed worship among the top three priorities of their church. Only 26%, okay? Listed in the top three priorities, yeah. They, they had something else. One, two, and three as the priority for the church. Um, Another way to ask this question is, is congregational worship a product or a service that the church provides for people uh, that is evaluated on the basis of how well they like it? Okay. I won't. I won't ask you to answer that question. Should we have customer satisfaction surveys regarding worship? Okay, that's an. We have them whether we ask for them. <laughs> yeah, he said we have them whether we ask for them or not. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I won't go there. Okay. So, let's go to the first. What I think is the first mark of congregational worship. Can you read that just barely? Yeah. Okay. Mature congregation worship is God-centered. A.W. Tozer, who's written a lot about worship, said that it's almost impossible to get Christians to attend a meeting where God is the only attraction. Okay, think about it. Very difficult to get Christians to go to a meeting where God's the only attraction. Now, I think the church needs to accept a little blame for that because sometimes we don't present a very engaging, good picture of God. And when they come, it's not because they didn't like God, it's because they they couldn't find him there. Or whatever we communicated about him was rather thin or or artificial or uh, uh, unlike him. But usually you have to kind of pat it with with something else. Either it's music or a guest speaker or, you know, whatever. 
So worship is God-centered. That does create a problem right away because of what Tozier experienced there. And I'd like to suggest some reasons why it's God-centered. First of all, God-centered worship is initiated by God. Uh, Worship is really not our idea. Um, We all will worship something, but our inclination is not to worship God. By nature, what do we do with God? By nature, we either ignore Him or we rebel against Him. And it takes a, a tremendous work of the Holy Spirit at conversion and then throughout the rest of our lives to turn us from being rebels and people who either ignore or rebel against God into people that worship Him. Think of the story of um, the nation of Israel. Uh, I was reading through this earlier this year, the book of Exodus, which that's one of the most exciting books in the Bible, really, if you, if you like to like excitement and kind of make a good um, action movie, I think, in a way. Uh, but Exodus we see a picture there of God coming down and meeting Israel at Mount Sinai. And you read the picture of what happened there, and it's so short that it's easy to kind of go past it and not get a picture. But there was thunder and lightning. There was smoke. There was a sound. The people were scared to death. I mean, they were afraid. And then God said, don't come up near the mountain, because if you do, you'll be killed. And called Moses up, and and the people all watched, and you know, that whole story. Well, 30 days later, after seeing this phenomenal uh, set of circumstances, what did they do? Anybody? They built a gold calf and decided to worship that. And Aaron was in on it, okay? Obviously, here, here they'd seen the plagues. They'd crossed the Red Sea. They'd seen God's miracles. Uh, he'd provided for them in many, many ways. And within 30 days of that, they'd already decided... Uh, that they were going to build something else to worship and not worship God. We are not by nature people that worship God. It's not our idea to do it and definitely not to do it right. If you read um, Psalm 78, 106, 107 through, there's psalms which in, in pretty clear ways trace the backsliding, rebellion, waywardness, apostasy, whatever you want to call it, of Israel over and over and over again, and yet they did not believe. But then they called to me, and I saved them, and then they went on, and they didn't believe, and they still didn't, you know. Just repeated over and over again, as you know well. Um, In those three Psalms, we see that picture that it was not their idea (laughs) to worship God. They weren't going to do that. Uh, With all the blessings and the Miracles that they saw, they they wouldn't do it. And then the book of Judges, if you read through the book of Judges, just that cycle of faith, re- rebellion, faith, disinterest, go your own way, everyone did what was right in their own eyes until some somebody got them back together or something happened. Um, they start being oppressed by their enemies. And just over and over and over again, their inclination was not to worship. And then in Romans 1, 21 through Actually, this goes a little farther, I think, than 23. But this very strong statement, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's worship. Although they knew God, they did not worship him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. It lists all the things it is, and one of them is, and they are haters of God. So, as a human race, whether it's the chosen people or the rest of us, we don't have a good record of being those that want to worship God. And the reason we worship God is because He initiates it. He calls it from us and in various ways draws us to Himself so that we become worshipers. We also know that God is seeking... Well, that's interesting. Something happened. God is seeking worshipers. The story at um, the well, Samaritan woman, and you know the, the passage, I think, pretty well. The hour is coming is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is looking, uh, in a sense, not that He can't find us, but God is seeking after people. He's reaching out, as we say today, to people for them to become worshipers. Worship begins with an encounter with God, and God is seeking us. So whenever we worship, it's because God knocked on the door first. God nudged us. God said, do this. Even when we come to church, why do you come to church? It wasn't your idea. Somewhere along the way, God's Word got into your thinking, and you realize that as a believer, this is where I should go. This is where I need to be. And uh, we come because He called us. Worship is also centered upon God. When we worship God, the focus of our mind and our hearts is God. It's not ourselves. That's why worship is um, God-centered uh, uh, because our minds are centered on Him and our hearts. Someone has said what we do in worship at its peak is we, we're obsessed with God. God just becomes so wonderful to us that we can't think of anything. Nothing else seems as, as good, as wonderful as that. Um, and worship is not, in that sense, not focused on our needs. It's not focused on our feelings. It's not focused on a worship experience. There is no one worship experience that we all ought to have. It's whatever God wants to do with us on that given day. And then it's directed to God. Worship ultimately ends at Him. Whenever we get together to worship, it somehow all should turn back to Him. We can talk about Him in our songs, we can praise Him in our hearts, but it's always coming back and directed back back to Him. He's the primary audience, but He's also the primary recipient. He's just not watching us do stuff. In a sense, it's real-time interaction, communion, back and forth with God when we're worshiping Him. And again, it's not merely a discussion about God. We don't just get together and have a theological discussion about God and call it worship. It's not until we're responding as He wants us to respond to that theological truth that we're that we're unpacking, that we really uh, have been worshiping. And then finally, worship is offered for God. Why? He deserves it, first of all. That's what you do to a God, and He is the one true God, and so He should be worshiped. He deserves it. And it's offered to Him because He desires it, and He enjoys it. 
So I would say this, worship is fundamentally for God's pleasure and benefit, not ours. What we do when we worship ultimately ends at Him, and it's a matter of whether it pleases Him or not is what is important. The results which we may get as worshipers from that time of worship are really secondary. Worship is not simply an t- arm-twisting of God to get us to be obedient. Uh, that's a secondary thing. We're doing this because God deserves the glory, the praise, the honor, the thanks, all of those things that, that uh, are part of worship. But having said that, God-centered worship will result in tremendous blessing to the worshiper. The greatest worship times that you've had with the Lord, where you felt the closest to Him, um, are the ones that have brought you the most blessing. And I can give you some examples of those. Um, Think of Moses after he spoke with God at Sinai. uh, We have this little passage. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And what did Moses do? And Moses quickly, it says, quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. When Moses was brought face to face, God told him who he was, what he was like, showed himself to him in that way. His first response was to bow his head towards the earth and worship. Do you think Moses felt blessed? Was that, was that an experience he wanted to tell people about? Was it something that he thought, wow, I can't believe this. You wouldn't believe what, what, I, what I just heard and saw and da-da-da-da-da-da, okay? Um, so that time of worship was a blessing to him when he met God face to face, saw God, and, and responded appropriately. Another one would be Isaiah after his vision of God in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, and you know that probably know the other verses in between. Um, And then at the end, we have this verse. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now, why do I say that's a blessing? This was the commissioning of Isaiah for his ministry. Did he have a fun, successful ministry? No. He wasn't one of those prophets that you would say, in one sense, man, he changed the world. He went around and people all over got saved. He was the Billy Graham of Israel. No, he wasn't. I mean, in a sense. And God told him at the outset, you're going to preach to these people, you're going to talk to them, and they're not going to listen, and they're not going to respond, but I want you to keep doing it. And he said, okay. Now, why would he, why would he, well, I'll I'll tell you why I think. (laughs) Okay. The reason that he was able, I believe, to spend his whole life doing something that really failed, in a sense, from a human standpoint, was because he had seen God, and he'd encountered God, and he'd worshipped God in this instant and responded to Him appropriately. And he was so blessed in that sense that it changed him, and it made him a man that was willing to go through his whole life with really no positive success, other than he was faithful. 
It's really the very God-centeredness of worship that blesses us. The more God-centered it is, the more we get blessed. It's nice to sing songs. It's nice to, to read scripture. It's nice to do stuff together. But the more that we get overwhelmed with God, the more uh, that we get a blessing out of that. Not because we're doing it to get that blessing, but because God is so wonderful. And the more we see Him, the more we respond to Him, then the more we're touched and moved, and it becomes a blessing to us. Um, D.A. Carson at, at uh, Trinity said this, Worship is richest when God is most fully displayed. Worship is richest when God is most fully displayed. And I would say this, the catalyst for more meaningful, intense worship is not primarily better forms, and that would be better music or better buildings or better sound systems or whatever, better lighting, but it's a better view of God. Somehow, if we get face-to-face -face with God in a very intense, real way, that's enough. That's enough. That becomes really meaningful time of worship. Now, there's a corollary to this that's kind of the downside of that, and that is that worship focus most on pleasing worshipers, I believe, <laughs> exploits worship and robs God of the supreme place he deserves. Because ultimately, we're trying to make people happy. We're trying to raise the customer satisfaction level. So worship focused most on pleasing worshipers exploits it and robs God of being the one that it's really being put together for. It's a little bit like I use the example of going to a birthday party of a friend, but you're really not there because you like the friend and want to make him happy. You're there because you know there's a couple people you'd like to make a business contact with. You know, I'm going to, yeah, go ahead. This statement, do you believe that that's true of both Old and New Testament times or just currently or... Oh, I think it's true all the time. Yeah. No, I don't think it's just Old Testament. Or just today. I mean, God wasn't trying to make people happy when he told them, you got to offer these sacrifices and, you know, all these things. I mean, it wasn't, you're going to really like this. It's going to be really fun. He didn't say that. This is what you need to do. And there's reasons we can draw from them. It taught us about God, taught us about our sin, pointed to the Savior, all those things that, that are there. Um, but it wasn't because he knew they'd have a blast doing it. Okay, another part of this. Enjoyable or pleasing worship experiences are not necessarily genuine worship. This could be a whole other discussion, but um, there's been a lot of emphasis lately on worship experiences, and, and if you look at the literature in, about worship, experience is often right in there in those discussions about worship, people wanting to have a certain kind of experience or trying to generate a certain kind of experience. My concern and my fear is, is that a lot of times, well, that may be too strong, many times the pleasure, the enjoyment that we're experiencing in a worship environment, put it that way, may not be really the worship that's going on between the communion that's going on between us. It could be the social interaction. It could be a musical experience. It could be sort of an emotional um, 
I've seen people that go to secular concerts who would describe it much the same way as a person going to a church service, the kind of experience that they had. In fact, some of them will say that that's where I connect with God is at the concert hall. You know, that's their, that's their religion. Uh, music is my God or music is my religion. So there's a real danger for us to enjoy something and then because we enjoyed it, assume that, that then it was genuine worship. It may or may not have been. Um, it's just not guaranteed. And um, striving to guarantee a certain kind of experience for everybody every time may actually hinder worship. And, I, and, and here are the reasons that every time people met God in the Bible, they didn't have a great time necessarily. It may have been a very hard time for them. They may have, may have been confronted with sin. They may have been challenged. They may, have, they may have sort of struggled with God, fought with Him a little bit over it. And, it. and there's times when we encounter God that He's not trying to make us feel good. He's trying to make us feel awful about our sin, trying to make us feel inadequate, trying to make us feel uh, re- the need for repentance. And so sometimes coming face-to-face with God does not generate a good thing because that's not what God's trying to do. Um, I also have felt that there's a bit of a danger of delight in worship, and, and I would describe it this way. The delight that you have in the worship experience may be more in the style of the worship, the music, the novelty, and it doesn't matter what style it is. It could be traditional, it could be contemporary, it could be southern gospel, it could be big band, it could be rap, hip-hop. But the delight is more in the form than it is really in the Lord at that point. Um, And I think when we begin to seek a particular worship experience, a feeling that we had somewhere in the past that we want to duplicate again when we get together, um, rather than seeking God, then that starts to become a roadblock to genuine worship. Um, And as, as I mentioned, it's not peculiar to any style. Traditionalists can delight in aesthetic pleasures. I know a lot of musicians that really judge worship on the, on the uh, aesthetic level of the music, and I, I, I'm not sure that it's God so much that they're enjoying as much as it is, as it is the, the uh, music. Progressives may delight in innovation because it yields excitement, and it was cool, you know, that was really neat. Uh, but it wasn't so much God that was really neat. It was just that worship time was really neat. Yeah. In what you're saying, it makes me think about what you've written here, that God-centered worship will result in tremendous blessing um, to the worshiper. But would you agree that sometimes that tremendous blessing to the worshiper, they're saying, I was blessed by that. But what, what they're really saying is, I really like that style of music where I had yeah. that emotional feel of the quality of the yeah. musical presentation. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying, yeah. And therefore it's not a, a true blessing because the blessing becomes the goal rather than the result. Yeah, yeah. So, he asked, well, probably couldn't hear it, could you? No. Um, when people say they were blessed, is it possible that what they were interpreting as a blessing was enjoyment of some... Um, aspect of the experience, not really God. And, and yes, that's kind of what I'm saying here. Is um, 
you could look at it another way. And think of it in Old Testament terms. It's a little bit like somebody bringing their offering to the to the priest to be offered and getting really caught up in how wonderful the offering is. And oh, that is the most beautiful lamb I have ever seen. Man, everybody ought to have lambs like that. That is gorgeous, you know. Or man, look at the, you know, whatever. We can we can get caught up in the offering and how wonderful the offering is and forget that the offering is really not the issue right now. It's the God that we're offering him to. Tammy? Relapse. Yeah, yeah. So, it, I understand what you're saying, but yet there's that balance of not judging someone else's. Oh, of course, of course. And what she, the point she's making is that you can't really tell. I can't tell what's happening in you. But I, I do think that's a great danger because I've seen it happen in me, and I know situations where it happens in other people. But I can't, on a one-to-one -one basis, unless I sit down and talk with you and we talk about what was going on at that moment, let's, let's evaluate, let's see, let's investigate a little bit. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the things I found out in church ministry is if the choir sings a really dynamic number and, and it's loud and that ends with a high C or something and, and everybody claps and people at the end of the church are oh, pastor, thank you, you really blessed me this morning. Well, I... I don't just blow it off, but I always know there's two options. That's the best way they know how to say that they connected with the Lord through that music, or they just really like the music, and I don't know which it is. So I just accept it as the best and say thank you. I'm, I'm glad it, you know, it was meaningful to you, and hope that's what they meant. Because <laughs> some people just, that's all they know how to say. I mean, it's, it's we, we don't parse our words that carefully about stuff like that usually and unless you have to teach on it for 20 years <laughs> which is probably unfair um, okay some implications of this for the worshiper whoops there we go um, of God being God-centered worship one is that uh, we we should as worshipers focus in a worship time Focus on seeing and hearing God and communing with Him. Make that your goal. I'm going in here because I want to see God, I want to hear God, and I want to commune with Him. I don't want to just go and enjoy church. Or, you know, but my goal is, is, is to go hard after God. Evaluate worship by asking, did God like my worship of Him? Did God like my worship? Did God like my worship? Not, did I like the worship? I mean, we're all, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of that. Probably worse than any of you because I talk about and think about so much and i am always got my antennas up, you know. But it's really, did God like my worship? Not, did I like the worship? 
And so the corollary of that is beware of asking questions like, did I like the worship? Okay, it's, did God like what I was doing for this past hour? Was he pleased? And then avoid worshiping to get or have an experience. Just simply seek to encounter and respond to God. That will be an experience. If it's genuine, it will be a real experience. It will be the best kind. If you encounter him and respond to him, be on the outlook for God. If you're leading worship, design worship to overwhelm the congregation with God rather than with the forms used. That's always a challenge for me when I plan worship. How can I get people thinking and looking and seeing God freshly? Um, give more attention to plan elements which reveal God when planning worship. Often, worship is often planned just for things that people can do to respond, that we can say. And there's not as much emphasis on how can we display God to these people so that they'll be really overwhelmed by Him, caught up in Him. Um, lead worship so that God, not an experience, is the reason for worshiping. You're, you're doing this because of how you feel about God. Second one, we'll move along. We're, what, are, what time do we have to stop? Let me know. Quarter, okay. That's good. Okay. Mature congregational worship is worshiper-driven. Now we're getting even more... Con- if you thought it was controversial, try this. There's a phrase out that has, well, there's two phrases. One is seeker-sensitive. One is that I use, too, is, is seeker-driven. Um, driven, I'll use the word driven because I use it here. By that, what I mean is it's that which determines the purpose, the structure, the style of the worship service. It's what drives its planning the service design. And my feeling is that from Scripture, mature congregational worship will be worshiper-driven. And here's some of the reasons. First of all, the purpose of congregational worship is for believers to worship their God. It's for believers to worship God. Now, why is that? Anybody? Why is the purpose of congregational worship that believers worship God? Okay. Okay. So if you're planning worship, you you sort of have in mind people that are saved, that love God to some extent, that have been born again, and um, but you know there's a problem there because not even believers can worship not even all believers can worship God. And we have some examples. God accepts worship only from faithful believers. And uh, if God will not accept worship from an unfaithful believer, I don't believe he's going to accept worship for, from an unbeliever. And I'll give you a couple of examples. You know the story of of Saul uh, when he held back some of the things he was to destroy, and he said, told Samuel, well, I kept these things back because I wanted, we were going to offer them in a sacrifice to God. And what was Samuel's response? He said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it's better to... Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen, and he means there, you know, pay attention and do it, 
is better than the fat of rams. God had given them an ornate sacrificial system. And he's saying, I really would rather have you forget about the sacrifices and just obey me. I'd prefer that rather than to try to disobey me and then kind of cover it up with this subterfuge of, of, well, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to give these to you an offering. The other one is from Israel's example in Isaiah 1, and I'm going to speak on this later in the year, I think, as I have an opportunity to speak on Sunday morning. And But I want to read this passage to you quickly because... Um, It's an example of people who were worshiping God with all the right forms, exactly as God had done it, in fact, exceeding. And this is the way he said, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. That's a surprise, isn't it, after you read through Exodus? When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? You're just wearing out the pavement, scuffing up the wax. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. And he was the one who appointed them. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. You can lift their hands in, in praise and prayer, and God's going to, says he's going to hide his eyes. He's going to, you know, I don't want to see that. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Remember the three monkeys? See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Well, that's kind of what God is saying there. So it's possible for people to go to be going through all the right worship forms and and being God's people and Him rejecting them. So the next thing I would say then, in, in line with that, is that seeker-driven, that is, worship that is driven by the unbeliever, compromises mature worship. Um, Present worship is weakened for believers. Why is that? Well, first of all, usually seeker-driven worship focuses on a narrow target group, which is a very small portion of the congregation, if that at all. And so it ignores the diversity of the congregation. Most congregations are quite diverse. Um, It makes worship difficult for a sizable portion of the people in the church, in the congregation. It deprives the congregation of a full range of enriching worship experiences. There's things you can't do because there's, this is aimed at non-Christians and they don't, they won't feel comfortable doing that. So you have to kind of, we can use the phrase, water down or dumb down the experiences that, so that they're at the level that a non-Christian won't feel uncomfortable. And I think in that sense, it limits the number and the scope and the depth of the worship elements that can be in, can be used in a congregational service, because you're trying to appeal to the non-believer. Future worship is undermined in this case because you're really presenting a distorted, kind of stripped-down version of what real worship is, and it's really hard. 
It's, it's kind of a bait-and-switch thing. Well, we get you in here, but that's not what it's really got to be like. It's supposed to be like this instead, okay? James Montgomery Boyce said that uh, uh, what you win people with is what you win them to. And uh, you can't kind of kind of sneak them in and then, then change the rules on them. Uh, oh, can we, uh, there we go, yeah. Um, and then outreach, I think, is really hindered when you try to use worship forms to do outreach. Worship forms are to do worship well. And outreach forms will do a better job at outreach than worship forms will do. And so I think there's a there's kind of a disconnect when you try to use the wrong tool to do something that it really wasn't intended to do. Um, now, that does lead me to this, though. Non-believers may be impacted by observing genuine worship. There's no question about that. It's not that that they can't get anything out of it or it will have no impact on First 1 Corinthians 14, 24, and this whole discussion about what should... What should be the nature of the things that go on when, the, when a bunch of believers are gathered together? And he says this towards the end. He says, If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now what, what would make an unbeliever fall on his face and worship God and declare that God is among you? I think he'd repent and get saved. He'd repent... He, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. He sees his sin. He falls on his face, falls before the Lord and says, I'm a sinner. Um, and he'll worship God. I think worship, genuine worship, can have an impact on unbelievers because they're experiencing God there. And that's what it says. He will declare that God is really among you. I sense that God was here. Okay, so some implications of worshiper-driven worship rather than seeker-driven. For worshipers, view forms in a worship service as a resource for meaningful worship. They're planned for you. They're intended for you to use to pursue God and to pursue interaction with Him, communion with Him. Embrace a variety of worship forms, styles, and structures. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but partly because you're part of a body and learn to appreciate the variety of the body and the variety of the forms that are meaningful. And then evaluate worship for its effectiveness in enabling or in helping the entire congregation to worship. It's, it goes back a little bit to this morning's sermon, give me this day my daily worship, or give us this day our congregational worship. I'd like what we do here to be a blessing to everybody, for everybody to be able to partake, partake, participate in it meaningfully. And, and we'll talk about this again on another mark, but there's a great value to be able to look down the pew and see somebody really meaningfully participating in something that just leaves you cold. That's good. They're different than you are. They probably don't like the same kind of ice cream either, you know, or whatever. Or they don't like the same kind of movies. They go to something, you know, different, different, whatever. The forms that we use are designed to be effective for the entire congregation as much as possible so that everybody can connect at some point in that service in a meaningful way. 
They're your brothers and sisters, so you want to do that. And then if you're a leader, worship leader, design congregational worship primarily for believers' participation. Plan the worship with sensitivity to unbelievers. You don't ignore the fact that they're there. You can be sensitive to that. But you're helping them understand, not trying to get them to participate in, in, at the level of worship that the congregation wants to, needs to. Okay, we'll stop here, and next week um, we'll start with this idea of it being biblically shaped. That's a little less controversial, I'm sure you'll find. Any questions? I'll be glad to answer questions. Or you can just leave if you want, but any questions? Yeah. Yeah, you can't tell. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And like I said, the two issues there. One is I can't read the heart. I don't know what they mean by that expression. So I have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay. And we don't always know how to say things. You know, we don't practice. Now, if I'm going to mean this, I'm going to say these words, and you know, just like this. We don't do that. So, um, yeah, you can't judge a person's heart. You have to assume that they're expressing, but you never know. And it could be wrong. I've probably told my wife when we visit a church, I didn't like that. <laughs> but we would have a little deeper conversation about why or why. Yeah. Is there a place to ask, well, what, what did you like about it? Yeah. 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 What I usually what I usually try to move for when I'm talking with people is, what did you find meaningful? Right. You know, what part of this um, activity that we've just been through in the last hour, hour, fifteen minutes? really helped you connect with God. And, you know, what happened? You know, if you get the opportunity to do that, that's what I, how I would approach it. Uh, and, and that may be what they meant when they said they liked it, is I liked it because I connected with God in a real way this morning, more than I did last week or, you know, or that other church or, whatever, you know, whatever they're thinking. Um, hopefully. But you just don't know. Mm-hmm. Chuck? Uh-huh. And, and I think we're looking for an experience, whatever that experience may be, it doesn't really reflect back to God at the end, no matter what that feeling or jubilation, whatever, whatever, however you want to label it, that is not true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he mentioned two things. One, you have to be prepared to worship. You have to come prepared, which is true. Um, I used to tell people, especially teenagers, one of the best ways to prepare for worship on Sunday is go to bed earlier on Saturday night. Because if you show up here and you're sleeping through the service, you're not worshiping, you're just there, <laughs> you know. And maybe true for us, too. And the other thing, I'm sorry, you, the other... Um, whatever experience that you may be looking for, if it truly doesn't reflect back to God. Right, yeah. 
if you're looking for some kind of experience that doesn't reflect back to God, he said that it may not really be genuine worship. It may just be a socio-musical experience. It, it may be... It yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, sir. Little, I I'm, I'm, can't hear you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is mentioned in both Ephesians and Colossians, almost like little twin passages. Uh, slight difference in, in the emphasis there, but um, is obviously one way. One, one of the things that you find in Scripture that is, there's several weddings related to, to worship in Scripture. One of them is God seems to wed music with worship. It doesn't mean that music is worship or that music is the only way to worship, but there's a very definite connection all the way through Scripture between music and worshiping God. And, and there's a reason. I mean, we know that what that is. Music? I've never thought about that. My first, my first thought is not necessarily... Because God did a lot of a lot of writing and a lot of preaching, a lot of teaching that wasn't music. Uh, oh yeah, yeah it is. Mm-hmm. Exactly, both to God and both to God and to each other. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Any other questions? I don't want to keep you if you don't want to stay. Uh, let's, well, okay. So, I guess a question for you personally. I, I'm starting to understand what a difficult job worship leaders, worship pastors have, because as you wrote here about that um, for the worshiper, embrace a variety of worship forms, styles, and structures. And since the vehicles of worship, whether it be a liturgy or an instruments or media, you know, videos or whatever, so, I don't believe they're ever neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're always going to bring something with them, whether it be a guitar riff or uh, an organ that's too soft or too loud. How do you avoid um, the law of unintended consequences, so to speak? Like, like you have to, as a worship leader, you have to try and have a variety, but then also look at those unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, unintended consequences are just that. <laughs> and I, th- I think experience and thought is the only thing you can do is, is apply your experience and your thoughtfulness as you go through to try to avoid it. I remember one story I read uh, about a fellow who became a believer out of um, the occult. And he walked into a church one Sunday morning, and the, and the organist, this was a liturgical church, the organist was playing one of the very familiar Bach Preludes and fugues that is really powerful. I forget which one it was. And the guy had to run out because it was what they had used in their occult practice. This, this organ sound was, had become associated in his mind with his occult worship. And so he, he couldn't handle it. He had to get out. And others would say, 
That's the highest form of worship is Bach chorale preludes or Bach preludes and fugues or whatever, you know. So unintended consequences, you can't hit them all. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things that bear with association. One thing that's happening now, I think, is that popular music is becoming less and less... Um, message defined, if that's a good way to put it, because they'll use classical music, rock music, country music, whatever, to sell a BMW. It doesn't, it's just whatever kind of image they want to create, you know. And it, and we get so used to it that it just is kind of wallpaper for us. And, and we're not, we don't feel that, oh, that's sinful or anything. It's just, it has become, sort of commercial music has become sort of a uh, a language that we sort of live with, but um, extremes of it maybe not as easily, but uh, it's becoming a lot more neutral than it used to be, I think. 